0: Has it ever crossed your mind that you're far too young for me?
1: It crossed my mind
0: that you might consider that a possibility, yeah? Quite apart from the fact that if you're a student... I'm not trying to pressure you into anything, Miss Cross. I'm surprised you brought it up so bluntly. A prep school student and a business tycoon both fall in love with the same woman. It's our 350th episode, and we're talking about the funniest name for a dodgeball club, the truth about baby carrots, and the best kind of scrubs. Oh, are we? Oh, we are going to find out if Rushmore stands the test of time. It's the test of time, James and Alan have their
1: say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glutton." Says, As a father, blah blah. It's the test of time, James and Alan have to say. The movies you love still hold up today. Test of time, James and Alan have to say. The movies you love still hold up
0: today. Hello, everybody. My name is Alan Noah. Your name is James and It's episode 350. Yay! 350. Yo, this is a big deal. It's episode 350, James. I know. I'm pretty damn excited. And I was talking at home with my son Eli about this the other day, and he's like, eh, 50s, who cares? It's only exciting when you hit 100. I'm like, All right, buddy, I think this is a big deal. This is not exactly our seven-year anniversary because we do 52 episodes a year, but like seven years. We've been doing this podcast for seven years. 2016, that was a lifetime ago. We've been podcasting through three presidential administrations, one global pandemic. The world has changed, you know, since we started doing this. Our second episode was about... Ghostbusters, because there was a new Ghostbusters that came out in 2016. Then they like rebooted the franchise again. We've been podcasting for that long.
1: Yeah, seven years. I mean, uh, how many episodes did we
0: miss because of the pandemic, Al? Zero. We missed zero episodes. I mean, that's kind of impressive. And I am not overly nostalgic about like the show. And I don't go back and listen to old episodes as a general rule. But recently we had a movie night where Eli was out with a friend and me and Courtney and our daughter were at home and we were going to watch something. And somehow the idea came up to watch the never ending story. And that was a movie that we covered on the podcast six years ago. We did that on our 50th episode with friend of the show, Adam Pincus, and I hadn't seen the movie since then. And we watched the movie, and then I went back and listened to the episode, and just like from an Alan Noah point of view... Our episode completely stood the test of time in terms of me, in terms of like what I thought watching the movie now in 2023. All of like the obnoxious Alan Noah little comments I made while we were watching the movie. Like, oh, did you notice blah, 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 blah? I said all of that on the podcast six years ago. I've done the same thing when I
1: listened to an episode that I, I don't even remember uh, talking about these things. But I'll think about Field of Dreams and I go, oh, yeah, that James Earl Jones line, that, that, that reminds me of that ice cream store I used to go to in medical school. And right there I'll go, you know, Al, this part reminds me of that ice cream store I used to go to when I was in medical school. It's the brain circuitry, that whatever scene in The Goonies or, you know, these old movies that you watched. It happens to not only unlock that memory, but probably some other memories the milk duds because you had it uh, when you're in the theater at that moment. It's amazing that I always think the exact same random anecdotes. I still have that same string of thought that A leads to an unrelated B.
0: Yes. And it's also funny that you said The Goonies because shortly after we watched The NeverEnding Story, we saw The Goonies. One of the movie theaters by us, they sometimes show like old movies and they were showing the Goonies and I believe it was the first time I'd seen that movie on the big screen. Maybe I saw it on the big screen when it first came out as a little kid, but we watched that movie again and I hadn't seen it in years and then I listened to that old episode and all of the things that were popping up in my head when we watched the movie now earlier this year, I said in that episode and that was like episode I think, four or five of the podcast. So from at least our point of view, our old episodes do kind of stand the test of time for whatever that's worth.
1: Well, your memory doesn't stand the test of time. The Goonies wasn't the third or fourth podcast. It was the seventh, Al.
0: Okay. <laughs> I think that's pretty good. I mean, come the hell on. Yeah, top ten. It was It was one of the first ten. You're, you're right. I haven't listened to those old episodes in a very, very, very long time. And with all due respect to the person who created our first theme song, listening to that old theme song does kind of make me cringe a little bit. Like, it's fine, and I loved it at the time, but I think I just love our new theme song so much more that listening to the old one just kind of makes my skin crawl a little bit.
1: Yeah, that one was bad, but I still love, I still love, if you remember from episode 100, when we debuted our, our current theme song, I basically got scammed when I went on, I think it was Fiverr, Upwork, and I paid someone 20 bucks, and they basically sent me just some gibberish on a keyboard. like As in, like they just hit a hammer on a keyboard for about 20 seconds, and sent it to me, and <laughs> I had been had. But uh, I love our, uh, our theme song now. Thanks again to John Martinez for uh, making that theme song great work and i do say a uh, gladiator with a gla. you do frequently you know something we haven't done in a while we used to talk about the statistics about you and me and just very uh very quickly how often do you think we agree al
0: less than 50 percent i'll say 40 ish
1: percent we agree 72 percent of the time
0: really i was way off wow okay Um, but I really kind of led the charge on watching Rushmore for 350. Apologies if I railroaded you, James. But I really, really, really wanted to watch this movie. This is, and maybe I lose a little bit of cred for admitting this as the co-host of a movie podcast, but this is the only Criterion Blu-ray that I own. I guess Criterion Collection means that, like, these movies are quote unquote important, that they are significant in some way, at least as deemed by the Criterion Collection, whoever the hell those people are. But this is a movie that I got on Blu-ray, I think within the past few years. This isn't like a Blu-ray I got 10 years ago and have just been holding on to. This was a movie that I really wanted to own on physical media, and I don't regularly buy Blu-rays anymore, really, at all. But I am glad that I own Rushmore on Criterion Blu-ray, and I watched that. I even started listening to the director's commentary, and it's actually not just a director's commentary. It's Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson and Jason Schwartzman doing a commentary, and I was really into that.
1: Yeah, because I think that's what really makes Criterion Collection uh, the Criterion. It's going to have all the commentaries— All the -the behind-the-scenes vignettes that maybe you saw on an ABC special 25 years ago, and the trailers, and and the interviews with Jason Schwartzman, and a copy of the screenplay. If you like a film, this is the piece of uh, media to own. So, yeah, Rushmore is one of those films that, uh, in the 90s, uh, I started being aware of these new director's uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be reviewing uh, a movie by Guy Ritchie. He was one of those guys that I started hearing about, oh, you know, small films. I haven't seen many of them. But every time they come out, they seem to get, you know, three, three and a half stars out of four. And the critics seem to like it. And this was the, the first time I had heard of Wes Anderson. But I did see this film in the theater.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that last week. And I was trying to rack my brain if I had seen this movie in the theater I'm pretty sure I hadn't. How did that happen? How did you go to see Rushmore in the theater? Um, One of two ways. This movie came out in
1: 1998, so it's possible that one of my buddies was still working at the theater, and then I just saw whatever I wanted there. Uh, He would usually let us in. Or, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, in 1998, that was a staple of what you did with your friends when you hung out that weekend. It was, we'd go to a movie, and then we'd go to, like, the diner or, you know, Bennigan's, whatever those kind of things were. That's really
0: interesting. On Long Island, we would go to the movies and then Fridays. So totally different experience. Completely unrelatable.
1: Well, if it was your birthday, the birthday song that the staff would sing, completely different.
0: I agree. (laughs) I'm just thinking of the South Park with Bennington's. I assume that's what you're referencing. No,
1: I was just saying that because the uh,
0: restaurants are pretty identical. So I was trying to think of something that would be different there. Actually, it's a happy anniversary from the South Park episode when Butters is thinking about his parents and they go, Happy anniversary from everyone at Bennington's. (laughs) in his little Butters voice. That was a terrible Butters impression. My apologies. But yeah, it's the exact same fucking thing. But uh, for anyone who doesn't remember Rushmore or who hasn't seen it, it's about an eccentric, overachieving teenager named Max Fisher who attends Rushmore, an elite prep school. Max falls for a teacher, Miss Cross, and befriends a middle-aged industrialist, Herman Bloom. To win over Miss Cross, Max tries to build an enormous aquarium at Rushmore, but the stunt gets him expelled. Bloom and Cross then begin to date, and Max feels betrayed. Ultimately, Max learns to accept life at his new school, and the fact that he can't be with Miss Cross. So, I don't think I saw this movie in the theater. You did. Was it a big hit when it hit theaters?
1: Um, It was a pretty decent hit. Uh, It opened on December 11th, 1998 for awards, uh, but it was released widely on February 5th, 1999, and it opened at number 13. It opened with $1.3 million. Okay. But- it wound up with $17 million domestically. In its week uh, two, three, and four, it actually rose from number 13 to number six, number eight, number nine. actually made more money. So it was something that gained the buzz. And that's probably when I saw it. I probably saw it after a couple people uh, recommended it. I remembered exactly one thing about this film. I'd only seen this film once. I liked it, but it's just something I'd never seen again. Wow. Um, Can you think of the line I, I remembered? I'll tell you, it was in the trailer.
0: Yes, of course, because you are a doctor. It's the line of, "What are you wearing? These are OR scrubs. Oh, are they? Am I right? Am I right? Yes, you're you're exactly right. It was
1: 1998. I, I was not a doctor then. But I did want to bring something out for you. If you might be thinking, well, what the hell are OR scrubs uh, versus, you know, just scrubs? It's not necessarily rank, but it's where you are in the in the hospital. So I have these two pairs of scrubs uh, from my residency. These uh, blue scrubs, this says uh, Maimonides labor and delivery. I was in that a lot, uh, you know, C-section stuff. But sometimes the C-sections were not specifically in the C-section area. They were in the main operating room. So then these scrubs here, these green ones, uh, these are Maimonides' OR, uh, Maimonides' operating room. So you definitely saw the blue guys, the green guys. So there were OR scrubs. Also, you know, it's the kind of film that maybe... uh, Resonated with me because this is a film about a high school kid who's talking about trying to get into colleges and uh, you know the extracurricular activities and while that's probably where the uh, similarities end, I definitely related to this similarly to uh, the movie that we had uh, reviewed, Election, where uh, Reese Witherspoon's character Tracy uh, was a very very overachieving kid and definitely had the same vibe that I was. It was very fresh in my mind. Not that I was that overachieving kid. But those people were in my high school and I definitely, definitely uh,
0: saw, uh, you know, uh, parts of people I knew in these two characters. So when we talked about Election, I remember that you were like anti-Tracy Flick. You didn't like that character because she was trying too hard with all of the clubs and extracurriculars. And I was thinking about that when I watched this movie with Max Fisher, who's also in a gajillion clubs. Did you have the same kind of resentment towards Max that you did towards Tracy Flick?
1: Max, while he says things like, I plan to go to Oxford and Harvard is my safety school. He's not actually talking like Tracy Flick because we see this guy's not getting into Harvard and he joins all of these clubs not because he wants to impress an admissions committee. He just wants to do everything like this. He wants to start a kite-flying society, not because he wants to pad his resume. I just think he's eccentric. So I didn't find him to be uh, the same kind of Tracy Flick, like, uh, I want to make sure that I get something so that I could step over someone else so that I get into Brown University and they don't. I didn't get that vibe from uh from Max, whereas I, I kind of got that from Tracy. Well, to
0: psychoanalyze Max, the reason he's in all of these clubs is because he's lonely and because he just needs to not be at home because home reminds him of his dead mother and Rushmore reminds him of life and, and being alive and makes him think of his mother in a positive way because she wanted him to go there. He wrote a play when he was like, five or six years old and then his mother was so impressed she wanted him to go to Rushmore and she made that happen and then shortly thereafter she died but she was the impetus for him going to Rushmore. Rushmore symbolizes his dead mother. They kind of only touch on that in the movie but that's sort of the subtext of all of it. There's like a montage of all of his clubs and there's text on screen that shows all of the different clubs. The absolute best one is the bombardment society which is dodgeball there's no better name for dodgeball than the bombardment society i love
1: that i did like that i might have missed it how come he goes there he's not rich even though he says his father i think is a brain surgeon uh we later find out his father is he's a working class guy he uh, he either owns or he works at a, a barber shop Rushmore, to me, is like one of these uh, Philip Exeter academies. This is uh, for for really, really rich kids.
0: They don't really explain how he's able to afford it. I think you're just kind of supposed to go with it.
1: I like the fact that um, he's this lonely kid, and uh, what does he do? He befriends the younger kids because no one his age will talk to him. In fact, they kind of torment him and they, they hate him. And his kind of clique are the, I assume they're probably the youngest kids at Rushmore. And they kind of look up to him in in a weird way. You're saying they, but it's really just one younger kid, Dirk. I got the idea from a later scene when they kind of have this little, uh, all the the boys are kind of throwing uh, snowballs or something at him. Rocks. Uh, Rocks, right, right, rocks. I got the idea that they all were kind of cool with him uh, earlier.
0: I guess that's fair. I think it was more so that, That Dirk was sort of like his one good friend and I think it actually kind of goes the other way where he's infatuated with Miss Cross and he befriends Bloom those are adults Miss Cross is maybe in her 30s Bloom is in his 40s 50s and he's kind of like on their level at least in his mind but also kind of he is like in reality and He's able to befriend these adults and it kind of works because he thinks himself very sophisticated like Miss Cross. He also is very immature like Bloom. So these relationships that shouldn't make any sense on paper kind of actually do make sense when you sort of think about it where it's easy to see why max would kind of gravitate towards the adults and i guess also to the younger kid dirk and not kids his own age and it
1: also makes sense why Bloom would gravitate towards this guy Max because Bloom has two sons that he explains at one point in the film could not be any different than the sons he imagined he would have. And uh, right. These guys are kind of uh, jocks and bullies. The opening of the film has Bloom making this amazing speech, I like think a commencement speech or some kind of a ceremonial speech at Rushmore. It's just in the chapel, I think. Okay, yeah, it's like you know some some sermon, and he's basically like. Fuck the rich. And I love that he's talking to this, like, preppy school. And he's like, yeah, all the rich kids here, like, they're going to be fine anyway because they're rich. I'm talking to you, the non-rich people. And I'm thinking, like, who the hell other than Max is not rich? Uh, I- I'm still kind of getting over the, like, why are there non-rich people here? I guess maybe they have a couple token
0: scholarships. Yeah, I would imagine so. It's a scholarship thing. But yeah, I mean, the speech with Bloom is funny to us, the audience, and brilliant to Max. I mean, like, he runs over to Bloom as soon as that speech is over and is like, Hi, you're absolutely right. I agree with everything you said. Can we be friends? I mean, he doesn't literally say that, but that's basically the vibe. And he wants to befriend this guy. And their relationship grows in a way that shouldn't work, but it does feel kind of organic and i also want to talk about his relationship with miss cross because when i first saw this movie i like max had a huge crush on miss cross when you saw this movie for the first time did you have like an infatuation with her oh olivia williams is uh she's perfectly cast yes
1: she's beautiful i don't know if it's maybe the wardrobe or the makeup she is so
0: perfectly cast as a teacher you'd have a crush on the wardrobe sure the look yes of course she is beautiful the accent i think is also a very significant factor but it's just like her whole personality she just exudes cool she is a teacher but not like you know the lame kind of teacher she's a cool one she's the good one and she's sitting outside smoking a cigarette and then max goes over and lights it for her and that is horrifically inappropriate and yet it kind of works and she's not like hey, get the hell away from me. She's like, all right, I'm going to see what this kid has to say because he's interesting. He's got the beret pulled all the way down and he's talking about how Harvard is his safety school. And she's like, huh, all right, let me see what else this weird kid has to say. And I think that draws Max to her more. And also definitely for me watching the movie, I was just like, Gaga over her. Do you happen to know what other movie we saw on the podcast that she was in? Um, no. She was Bruce Willis's wife in the sixth sense.
1: Right, right, right. Yes, he says Olivia Williams. Uh, yeah. She doesn't have a British accent in that film, I don't believe.
0: I don't think so. I mean, she has like three lines in that movie. You know, like she's an important character, but one who is barely on screen in that movie. I wish she was in more things. I love her as an actress. I absolutely love this character. And I love, like, the way that Max really, really tries to do everything he can to win her over. From saving Latin, which is his big romantic gesture, to that scene in the library where she's, like, going to, to have a drink and she doesn't have anything. And he has a picture of lemonade just there he's sitting in the school library with a pitcher of lemonade and he refills her drink and then she goes to write something and her pen doesn't work and he grabs it away and chucks it in the garbage and hands her a completely brand new replacement pen that is the exact same kind of pen like it's a wordless moment and it's so goddamn funny and i love the way that she just reacts by saying you know I'm too old for you, right? Like, he's not saying I'm in love with you. He's not confessing any feelings, but she knows, and we the audience know, and it's perfect. It's all just perfectly timed and perfectly delivered.
1: Yeah, their relationship, uh, you can't help but watch it with, uh, with a 21st century lens. Some of the dialogue she says later when she's totally fed up with him, and she goes— take off my clothes and then we're going to have sex and uh and max is like oh he can't believe she's saying it and you know it definitely gets the point across of course she's not actually soliciting him but you can't have this dialogue today anywhere not
0: even these rushmore philip exeter academy places well that conversation happens after she's quit so there's less of like the professional stigma attached there i hear what you're saying But I think while Max is a student, she is perfectly diplomatic about how she's going to let him down and let him down gently. She's trying to let him down gently. And that's really hard because Max is so infatuated with her that he. Decides to build her this giant aquarium because they have a little conversation about the fish tanks in her classroom. And then he's like, ah, well, I already saved Latin. What else can I do to win her over? And this grand gesture of building her the aquarium, of course, backfires. He's expelled by the dean or headmaster or whatever his title is. Brian Cox. That's right. From Succession. From everything. He's Brian Cox. Yes, I know, but I'm thinking of Succession because the fourth and final season is about to premiere, and I'm very excited for that. Uh, But I think I forgot that he is expelled from Rushmore pretty early in the movie. It's like a third of the way through, and he's kicked out of Rushmore, and that's like, you know, the titular school. But, like, it's fine because so much of his story is about his journey— after rushmore i guess i mistakenly remembered that that happened later in the movie uh yeah i think i thought the same thing i forgot
1: he was uh, expelled at all but once it happened i go oh yeah and uh you know, you figure uh, uh this is going to be interesting when he goes to public school and it definitely is i love that he wears his rushmore uh blazer everywhere in this school it- it's fantastic
0: right because rushmore is not just Where he went to school, it is a part of his identity. So of course he would wear that to his new school. I just love how quickly he's uh, embraced by this public school.
1: Uh, he starts all these societies uh, he becomes the school mascot, and they absolutely love him. He breaks out into an amazing twenty times flip which is you know a, a gymnastic skill we didn't know he had, but uh, you know he's really embraced here he's got his own little entourage he's giving orders there's a great uh, montage scene where he's you're seeing all of his success in this new school and and there's students on both sides of him. He's giving orders to the left. He's giving orders to the right. I'm happy for him because poor guy, was a, he was a loser. And he's not a mean kid. Well, I mean, he does some stuff that's not so nice. But he doesn't deserve to have no friends. And this girl, uh, Margaret Yang, uh, she
0: befriends him. And uh, I was happy for him. But he's not that interested in Margaret Yang because he's still hung up on Miss Cross. And his best friend is now Herman Bloom. And their relationship continues to be, I think, hilarious when Bloom goes up to Miss Cross and, like, hands her a letter from Max. And, like, if you stop and think about that, that is preposterous. Max is a 15-year-old kid, and he has his friend— A 50-something industrialist tycoon go to a school and hand a teacher a note that's like, hey, I'm sorry about the way that I liked you too much. And Bloom is like, yeah, sure, I'll go do that. Like, that makes no goddamn sense at all. And yet it kind of feels real in the movie and of course it's only heightened by the fact that bill murray plays bloom and he's like kind of hiding behind a tree and then like he runs over to her and then he runs away after he hands her the note and it's just so goddamn funny and after max is rejected by miss cross bloom of course falls for her i forgot that bloom was married and so, you know, he's having an affair with Cross and Dirk, the, the little kid, discovers it and then tells Max because Max had said a lie about getting a hand job from Dirk's mom. Did you recognize that actress who plays Dirk's mom? No. No, who's that? That's Connie Nielsen, who we recently oh. saw in The Devil's Advocate. Yeah. You know what other movie she's in? Wonder Woman? Gladiator. I've never heard of that movie.
1: Uh, one Best Picture.
0: Um, what did you say it was called? Uh, Gladiator. Who else is in it? Russell Crowe. Oh, do you mean Gladiator? Yeah, Gladiator. Yeah, that's not what you said. Oh, but I have to mention the scene where Bloom goes over to Miss Cross's house. He's clearly there to talk to her, and he kind of has this pretense of, like, what crazy thing does Max have lined up for us today to do as a threesome? And she's like, nothing. We have the day off. And he's like, oh, okay, And she offers him a carrot. And my friend Brett Sills, who joined us on our Hackers episode not that long ago, I remember him talking about this movie and him saying that Bill Murray eating the carrot in that one scene was perfect. And I watched the movie with the commentary on, like I mentioned earlier. And I forget if it was Owen Wilson or Jason Schwartzman who said that, The way Bill Murray eats the carrot is perfect, and they saw it, and they told Bill Murray after they shot the scene, you really ate the shit out of that carrot. And Bill Murray himself said, you know what? I really did. So shout out to Brett. You were correct. Bill Murray himself agreed that he did a great job eating the carrot. And like when you think about it, eating a carrot is the worst thing. To watch somebody else do. It's so loud. It's so noisy. It's so crunchy. No one wants to see someone else eat a carrot. But Bill Murray eating a carrot, not only is it not gross, it's hilarious. How does he make eating a carrot hilarious? Only Bill Murray can do that.
1: I think it's a baby carrot.
0: Fine. That's still a carrot. You know baby carrots are just carrots that they make into smaller carrots. No, they're actually babies. I don't think you understand how carrots work or how babies work, which is a problem because you are a pediatrician.
1: Well, I'm pretty sure there's a number of states where um, baby carrots are illegal now.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. That's the next culture war. The next time Tucker Carlson's looking for something to be mad about, it's going to be baby carrots.
1: Um, He's looking for something to be mad about.
0: That's true. That's true.
1: But we definitely have to talk about the turn in the film when Bloom is seeing uh, Miss Cross. And now he thinks, if I can't have her, nobody can. Or specifically, if I can't have her, certainly Bloom can't have her. And then there's this uh, pretty funny kind of tit-for-tat montage of uh, revenge. Uh, Max goes after Bloom, and then Bloom kind of gets back at Max. And then one goes a little bit too far, and they get the police involved.
0: And uh, it's pretty fun. When Max cuts the brakes on Bloom's car... All of that is ridiculous and preposterous, but it works for two reasons. One is that it's been established that both Max and Bloom are horrifically immature. So the fact that they're doing this really immature shit to each other works. It makes sense based on their characters.
1: Well, one is a 16-year-old and one is, you know, adult. Right, do you have a problem with adults who act like children? James Brief? No, I'm just saying that it's not exactly a parallel. This is not like old school where you have a bunch of, uh, you know, 30-somethings acting like kids. You have one person who's acting like a kid, and then you have an adult acting like a kid. But it's as if they're two 16-year-olds. I, I do love it. I- I'm not uh, saying there's anything wrong with it.
0: Yeah, it it works in the logic of the movie. Also, it's enhanced by the soundtrack, which is phenomenal throughout this movie. But this scene is soundtracked by A Quick One While He's Away by The Who, which is kind of a deep cut by The Who. I believe it's their first rock opera or their first mini rock opera. It is perfect for this scene while they're fighting and the crescendo of you are forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. It's paired perfectly to everything you're seeing on screen. And yeah, the fact that Max kind of tries to kill Bloom, it's not like an actual, you know, attempted murder. It's more like cartoony. And when they eventually call a truce, Max says to Bloom, Look, I'm done with this. It doesn't matter anymore because no matter what I do, she's going to love you, so I might as well give up. And it's this very heartfelt moment. And then he also just kind of casually mentions while they're at Max's mom's grave that, oh, the real reason he invited him there was because he would plan to have the tree, the giant tree that's there, crush him. And he's like, yeah, but it was too much work. (laughs) That's pretty serious. That's pretty serious attempted murder, but eh, whatever, it's fine. Yeah, um, another
1: Max scene that uh, I really liked and kind of was setting the tone in the beginning of the film. I wasn't sure if this was a Tracy Flick person or not, but the opening of the film is kind of a dream sequence where... The teacher is like, well, class, now I'll show you this equation that has stumped mathematicians for millennia. And anyone who could solve this is the greatest person ever. It's the hardest geometry problem in the world. Right. And then Max like super cool. Like he's in some Steven Soderbergh film. He gets up. He takes the chalk. Super smooth. And he just like it's nothing at all. He does the equations. And the professor's like. You've done it, Max! And the entire school thinks he is the biggest hero in the world. And this is so ridiculous on many levels, because yeah, you know, not only would he not be able to do this, but even if he did, imagine your high school, Al, that some 16-year-old had just figured out that it's actually not E equals MC squared, but it's E equals MC cubed. Changes science forever. Do you really think the people in your high school would start like banging on the walls like, yes, yes like it's funny. It's it's absurd. And you know, when I realized he's dreaming, I definitely realized, okay, this is this is not a goodwill hunting situation. This is more of a guy who imagines maybe he could do it. The kind of guy who says Harvard is my safety school and is getting like a C minus in his uh you know his classes.
0: Right. Yes. None of this is realistic. Apparently, in reality, the geometry question that is on the board is Mildly difficult, but actually not really all that hard. I didn't know that. I only saw that on Wikipedia. But yeah, you're right. None of the high school kids that I know would have actually given a shit. Although this is a elite prep academy, so maybe. But yeah, this is his fantasy. This is what he wants. He wants to fit in. He wants to be accepted by his peers, and he's not. You know, I want to ask you a question.
1: Bloom, he's this weird, rich guy There's a scene at his rich guy home, and for some reason, he owns this beautiful uh, swimming pool with a high dive, but the pool is not maintained at all. It's overflowing with disgusting green water. You remember this scene, right? Yeah, yeah. So... He, like, stops the party because everyone is just staring at him. What is the old man doing? And he proceeds to just not give a shit at all, and he cannonballs into his own pool. And he's kind of, like, relaxing underwater. And, you know, this is a a weird thing for for this guy to do. But, you know, Bloom's kind of a—he's an odd character. This is my question. As this guy is sitting there uh, with his feet clutched underwater, another boy swims by in this pool. Is this a hallucination? Is this a Wes Anderson weirdness? Or were there people swimming in this pool that everyone was
0: disgusted that Bloom was jumping into? No, it's not a hallucination. It's another kid at the party. It's his son's birthday party, and there's other kids there. He's not deliberately trying to stop the party. He's just filled with ennui and he hates his life and his wife seems to be flirting with some other guy so he's just gonna jump in the pool and just sit underwater which by the way is a thing you sometimes see in movies and tv shows It's hard to do. It's hard to just go underwater and just kind of like sit there and be sad. Also, he's like smoking and drinking at the same time while he's jumping off the diving board, you know, neither of which is a good idea to bring into the pool, but he's just so miserable. He doesn't care. He doesn't care that everyone's looking at him and this other random kid just happens to be swimming by at that moment. I don't think there's any more significance to it than that. Okay. Um, Did you
1: find out about her, uh, the actress that played Margaret Yang? No. Who's that? Uh, It's an actress, uh, Sarah Tanaka. You've seen her in one other film. I actually mentioned it in this podcast. I don't know what. So she was in old school. She's like the class president who winds up uh, basically saving the day at the end. Dean, you took a bribe. This is how bribes work. Okay. And interestingly, uh, she wound up uh, not going the acting route, and she wound up uh, attending Brown uh, University as an undergrad, University of Chicago uh, for medical school, and she's now a cardiologist. Oh, good for her. Yes. Now, you know what real world uh, uh, woman she reminded me of? Big in the news in the last couple of years. No, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, so Margaret Yang winds up winning the science fair, right? Mm-hmm. She has this big uh, project, and Max, at the end, asks her... How did she win the science fair? Do you remember what
0: she says? Oh, yeah, she cheated. Oh, you're talking about Elizabeth Holmes. Exactly. She's Elizabeth
1: Holmes. She had such a brilliant project because she faked her results. And she says specifically, like Elizabeth Holmes, yeah, I didn't get the results that I was trying
0: to get, so I just made up my own data. Very important distinction. Margaret Yang is a kid. Elizabeth Holmes was an adult. She was ripping people off in real life. Margaret Yang is a fictional character in high school who won an award and then got it taken away.
1: True. I mean, Elizabeth Holmes was sentenced to 13 years. I mean, she shouldn't even serve half. Margaret Yang should get way less than half of that.
0: No, no, no. Margaret Yang is adorable. You yes, love yes, yes. her. Margaret
1: Yang is, is – she, she's great in this film. I always appreciate, you know, the person that's looking out for the loser. You know, this guy's a new kid and I always appreciate that in in films uh, when when the guy's a new person in school and then someone comes up to him and and says, hello, like you're the new kid here because that happened to me. I was the new kid in uh, high school. I I didn't know anyone first day of freshman year and it was that was a terrifying day. Who was your Margaret Yang? Well, I'll tell you, um, I almost had a uh, Mean Girls moment. I did not meet a single person the first few periods, and lunch was fifth period, and I just stood there with like a tray, and I go, what the fuck do I do now? I just walked around the two cafeterias for like 10 minutes, Just, I just kind of started circling. I was thinking, do I do what uh, Lindsay Lohan did in Mean Girls? Do I go to like a bathroom stall and just sit down and eat my lunch and <laughs> cry, uh, and then I bumped into a kid that I had gone to day camp with like eight years earlier. And he goes, Jamie, that's how long ago I had known him because he was calling me Jamie. He got me to sit at a table with these like comic book nerdy kids, real yeah, mostly sweet kids, further down that table was eventually one of my best friends from high school, Billy Blitzky, who wound up reviewing Terminator and Terminator 2. So that first day nightmare wound up leading to our buddy for Terminator. I'm sorry, what was that second movie? Uh, Sorry, Terminator 2 colon Judgment
0: Day. Oh. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I remember that movie. But James, let me ask you, what do you think about Rushmore? Do you think this movie stands the test of time? You know, last week we talked
1: about Bottle Rocket. It was the first time I'd seen that film. And while I said it stood the test of time, I said this stands the test of time because it's interesting enough and it's a quirky Wes Anderson film. And I kind of said one of these, like, look, this is not for everyone. You gotta like the quirkiness. Rushmore I think is superior in pretty much every single way minus not having Owen Wilson in it who's always fun to have in a film he did co-write this movie he did write the film and Luke Wilson has a small part in the film he's the uh, doctor of, of the OR scrubs uh,
0: fame he wrote that line by the way that's a Luke Wilson pitch that was not in the script i got this from the commentary when they were filming he was like oh you know it would be funny and he pitched that line and everyone laughed and That's from Luke Wilson. I think that
1: line might have made Wes Anderson's entire career because I mentioned earlier that I remembered that from the trailer and that line got a big laugh. And I think later people remembered they laughed at a trailer and it was getting good reviews. So I think that line was definitely helpful for this film. And – You know, I just think everything about this film is better. I don't think this is a film for everyone. It still has some Wes Anderson quirkiness, not as much as his later Wes Anderson, like, ah, this is such a Wes Anderson kind of uh, hotel lobby or, you know, I wouldn't say it's that kind of Wes Anderson quirkiness. I would say that this film is a little bit more, uh, has a little bit more of a mass appeal. 1998's Rushmore, it stands the test of time. It's a fine film. Is it a film I need to watch more often? No, but uh, I do need to see it more than once every 20 years. I, this was an enjoyable film. So Al, what do you think? Uh, does uh, Rushmore stand the test of time? And I'd love to know what you think compared to Bottle Rocket as well.
0: You just called this movie a fine film. And that kind... Kind of hurts me a little bit. I meant it's a fine film. Not
1: it's fine. No, this is a fine film. Like like fine foods. Let,
0: let me say it like that. Okay. Fine. <laughs> See what I did there? Uh but no, even still, you are wrong. I hate hyperbole, but I'm gonna do it anyway. This movie is a masterpiece. If you're going to make a pun intended, Rushmore of some of the best movies of the 20th century, I think you could really make a strong argument for this movie being included. Wes Anderson does everything right in this movie. With Bottle Rocket, I kind of felt like that movie had more style than substance. This movie has style and substance. It has All of the elements that a director can use when making a movie. It has razor-sharp dialogue delivered by fascinating characters played exquisitely by amazing actors. There's humor. There's real pathos and pain in these characters. When you think about it, this movie is a coming-of-age movie. It's a love triangle movie. We're at 350 episodes. How many other movies have we talked about that had love triangles or coming-of-age stories? A bunch. Many, many, many. But how many movies have we seen like Rushmore? Zero. This is a completely unique movie. And when I watched it the other day, it really struck me how much this is a movie about grief. Max is processing the loss of his mother— Miss Cross is processing the loss of her husband, and that is what motivates these characters. It's what draws them together. They don't really talk about it a ton in the movie, but that is the theme. It's about processing loss. It's about people who can't process loss. It's about friendship. It's about obsession. It's about infatuation. It's about privilege and these rich kids at Rushmore and the poor kid who— just happens to be there like like you were saying, I love how Max makes these grand huge gestures with this aquarium and it fails and then Bloom does the same thing. he spends eight million dollars on a huge aquarium to impress Miss Cross and she doesn't even bother showing up. What does impress her at the very end of the movie he gets a haircut. he goes to Max's father's barber shop, he gets a haircut. And Miss Cross kind of like tussles his hair a little bit like, oh, you're trying now. You've put in a little bit of effort into your life. That's something like that's what impresses her. This movie is filled with small moments, with big moments. Yeah, with all of the Wes Anderson signatures, with the lockdown shots and the the action going from one side to the other. The soundtrack of this movie is phenomenal. I mentioned that I own the Criterion Blu-ray. I also own the soundtrack on CD. Start to finish, every track on this soundtrack is amazing. Originally, Wes Anderson wanted it to be all Kinks songs, and he only ended up with one song by the Kinks, but it's a lot of British Invasion songs. Uh, Two Cat Stevens tracks, or Yusuf, as he goes by now. The score is done by Mark Mothersbaugh, who you know from... Which new wave band, James? Uh Uh-huh. No, Devo, you moron. Obviously Devo. It wasn't even a good guess. No, no, it was Devo. But, I mean, you always love movie scores. You didn't love the score of this movie? Yeah, the movie score was good. No, it's not good. It's phenomenal. Shut up, you (laughs) idiot. It is amazing. Also, a thing that we've talked about in other podcast episodes is length of movies and how some movies are long and they feel long and some movies are short and thank god they're short or there are movies that are long and they feel short and that's like a really high compliment to pay to a movie right like it's long but it moves and you're so excited that you don't care that it's long this movie is 93 minutes and it feels longer And I say that as a compliment. I realize that it might not sound like a compliment. It might sound like a weird backhanded compliment. But there is so much in these 93 minutes. This movie is so dense and filled with so much stuff that you're like, holy shit, this was an hour and a half? If you told me this was two and a half hours, I would have bought it. It is a phenomenal movie. This is one of my all-time favorite movies that we've done on the podcast. This is probably one of my all-time favorite movies, period. Yes, of course, this movie stands the test of time. I love Rushmore. For anyone out there who hasn't seen it, go see it. Immediately. Watch this movie. I think it is truly, truly fantastic. Wes Anderson is phenomenal. I read something where apparently some critics— Or some fans group his movies into a trilogy of Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, and uh, the Royal Tenenbaums, and then everything else that he did. And I saw that and I was like, oh, should we have done Royal Tenenbaums next week too and made this like a trilogy? And we didn't. We had other plans. But also, I'm fine to save Royal Tenenbaums for Down the Road because that gives me something else to look forward to. I remember seeing that and liking it. I haven't seen it in a very long time. But... I truly think that Wes Anderson is a gifted filmmaker, and this just might be his masterpiece. So, yes, emphatically, it stands the test of time. Guess what, Al? What? I own the Criterion Collection of Royal Tenenbaums. You do? Uh, Has that been opened, or is that shrink-wrapped? This
1: one is shrink-wrapped, and um, I own another copy that's opened. You
0: own two Criterion collections.
1: Yes, I have two copies of uh, Rotenbaums. And I have not seen this film also in uh, probably 20 years. All
0: right. Well, we will watch it on the podcast. Uh, Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, I think, is more than 15 years old. I still haven't seen The French Dispatch, which I really, really want to see. That's on HBO Max. And I've been begging Courtney to watch it one uh, movie night. And we haven't gotten there yet. But yes, we will do more Wes Anderson on the podcast. But before we go,
1: I have one special thing for you, Alan. What's that? I have a present for you. Okay. This is a temporary little present. You'll get the real versions of it. Uh, You'll see when you open it, the real versions of it very soon. You may open up.
0: Okay. It's an envelope. It's a white envelope. It's not sealed. I'm opening it up. Let's see what it is. It says, admit one, Back to the Future, the musical, and there's two of them, which means I get to go twice! That's so nice of you, James! But it's
1: for the same night! It's two tickets for the same night, Al!
0: Oh, I get it.
1: Do you know anyone that really likes Back to the Future that might want to see the new Broadway musical, Back to the Future, the musical?
0: I hope you're listening, Courtney. We're going to go see Back to the Future, the musical.
1: Oh, I think she's really going to like it. I'm really happy for you guys, Al.
0: Oh, James, I'll take you to the musical instead of my wife. Aw. <laughs> did you know this thing existed? I did because it's all over my Facebook feed. The algorithm knows that I like Back to the Future, so that is in my targeted ads all the time. Is it an algorithm? I would have to assume so. Uh, well thank you that is very kind James I'm excited to go see Back to the Future yay but that's gonna do it for episode 350 next week we have a movie that is very very different Wild Things very different style very different tone very different in virtually every way one thing it has in common but it's also from 1998 and I'm excited to talk about that movie next week as always, we want to hear from you guys. I've been saying this for 350 episodes. I mean, come on. We are at Tested Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Write to us. Say hi. Say hello. Just send a gift, Send an emoji. Whatever the hell. We don't care. It's just nice hearing from you guys. And we will see you next week for episode 351. Bye.